I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. But we're going to be in Acts 2 again. Some of you are thinking, why do we go backwards to Acts 2? I thought we were in Acts 4 or 5, somewhere in there, and, and that is accurate. But we want to take a pause from the progression of the text of Acts to talk about something that's one of the most important elements or, or acts, if you will, in the book of Acts, which is the act of baptism, the practice of baptism. So the whole service this morning, or rather the whole message is going to be around baptism. It's going to be rooted still in Acts, rooted still in the story of the early church, the DNA of the early church that we're learning from. But you're going to see throughout the book of Acts, baptism is going to keep showing up over and over again. So we want to take a pause this morning and drill down and talk about baptism. If it's that important for the early church, it's got to be important for us. And indeed it is. And so we want to talk about it. Um, I found as I've had some conversations this week about baptism, there's a lot of energy around talking about it. And I think it kind of comes from some of the questions and confusion that we have around baptism. How should you be baptized? Um, when should you be baptized? Does my baptism count? Because it happened, you know, when I was a baby or under these circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But I've also found that baptism can be a rich source of great conversation about the life change that God has done in someone's life. I would challenge you this week in your small group, or in a group of friends, or maybe just having coffee with somebody, ask them this question. Have you been baptized? If you have, tell me the story of your baptism. And you'll be amazed at how like, the, the conversation just goes to a level of depth that I think you'll really appreciate and enjoy. We've been asking our, some of our fellowship groups to do this this week. Um, about 20 of our fellowship groups use the sermon-based or message-based curriculum. So they're looking at the passage that we study every week, and they're looking at it a week ahead. So the last seven days, these groups have met, and uh, they've been talking about baptism in anticipation of this morning. And we asked them as kind of an icebreaker, you know, how about this for an icebreaker? Talk about baptism and ask these three questions. Have you been baptized? If not, why not? Second question, if you have been baptized, how many times have you been baptized? <laughs> and were you baptized, as, uh, sprinkled, poured, immersed? Like in what way were you baptized? And then the third question is, Why? Were you baptized? And, you know, here's how we set this up. Like, no pressure. You don't have to share. But if anybody wants to share. And I got this uh, uh, email from this group leader. He said, we had 14 people in our group. Every single person wanted to talk about this. Of the 14 people in our group, we had 23 baptisms. <laughs> every major Christian denomination, every major world religion was represented in our group's background somehow. Isn't that fascinating? And this is the, the kicker. Everyone agreed it was the best group night ever. Because right? you start talking about these stories and it unlocks something. That's what baptism is meant to do. It's meant to, to point us to something beyond the act itself. And that's what we're going to talk about. But I want to start our scene in the book of Acts. And I want to start it in Acts chapter 2 where I've asked you to turn. This is the day of Pentecost as we've already taught on this. The Holy Spirit arrived. Some spectacular things started happening. Uh, the, the disciples were speaking in languages that they didn't know, you know, 10 minutes before. And the thousands of people that heard this said, what could be the explanation of this miracle that gives Peter the opportunity to preach the first sermon? And the message of his sermon is basically, the king came. You killed the king but he was raised and is offering salvation to all who put their trust in him. Right? That's the message of the gospel. That's what Peter's first sermon entails. And then there's this fascinating question that comes up at the end of Peter's sermon in verse 37. So look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Right? The gospel's just been preached. Here's what happens next, verse 37. When they heard this, they were 
pierced to the heart. By the way, only the Holy Spirit can do that. And no sermon, no preacher. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38. Actually, before we go to 38, let me say this. Think about it this way. That was the first time the question's been asked, hey, how do I respond to the good news? Like, I've just heard this news, this gospel, this proclamation. What do I do with it? How do I respond to it? Isn't that important to know like, how to answer that question when someone asks that question? You know, you, you asked that question at one point and somebody from your church or a friend gave you the answer, right? Here's how Peter answers the question, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Keep going. For the promise is for you and your children, the the very ones of you who killed Jesus, and for all you who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. What a good example there of God's sovereignty and man's free will commingled in that verse. Verse 40, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word, notice the order, those who had received his word, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, receiving the word means they believed it. It's like when you hear the news, you either resist it or you receive it. You either believe it or you think it's crazy talk. And those who had believed it, those who had put their faith in Christ, because that's the heart of the message, were then baptized. And we know there were 3,000 of them. Now, um, some of you in the room been to Jerusalem. Most of you haven't. There's not a lot of water available. Like, and the water that's there is precious. There's only a, two or three places that are at least natural pools around in Jerusalem that come from water sources where people could have been baptized. And you can go to these places today, the Pool of Siloam, the Pool of Bethesda. There's not a lot of other options. Uh, they did have these mikvahs, which were these ceremonial cleansing areas that the Jews would use. Maybe they were using those for baptisms. But I, I'm imagining most of these 3,000 people were crowding around these small little pools, these water sources, and it would have attracted attention. In fact, this is the first way, well, actually the second way, that the church is living out its call to be witnesses when the power of the Spirit came upon them. The first way is the tongues. The second way now is all these people are getting dipped under the water, and it must have created a stir with those that were living in Jerusalem at the time. In fact, I would imagine that the early church were were known as much for their crazy water activity baptisms as they were for anything else. I mean, it would have been a very visible thing that they were doing there in the community. Now, that's the context for the book of Acts. And then you'll see a baptism being associated with salvation all throughout the book. It's like people are saved, they're baptized. People are saved and they're baptized all throughout the book of Acts. It's an important theme and we want to drill down. So here's where we're going to go. I'm going to talk about the what, the why, the who, and the when of baptism. What is baptism? Why get baptized? Who should be baptized? And when someone should be baptized? And we'll spend most of our time in the first two. What it is and why should you be baptized? Let's start with what. Uh, I'm going to put a quote on the screen from our doctrinal statement, which you can just pull right off the website. I I looked it up this week and reread it, and I I really like the way that uh, our elders, and this is years ago that this was put together, have expressed this. Let me read it to you. Baptism is the one-time act of obedience in which the person who has put their trust 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf, is publicly immersed, then raised from water, signifying their identification with Christ in the body of Christ, the church. It is the outward sign of the inward reality of personal salvation. If you're looking for just kind of like one quick idea to kind of grab onto, that last phrase is pretty good, right? It is the outward sign of the inward reality of personal salvation. In other words, your salvation, in a sense, is is invisible, theologically speaking. Now, you know, the effects of it in your life change should be visible. But baptism is the act that makes visible that which is invisible, which is your personal salvation. Here's what I want you to see from this definition is baptism points to something beyond itself. The act of baptism by itself, someone going under the water and coming back up, that's, that's no big deal except and unless it is pointing to something greater than itself. What is it pointing to? Well, go back to the beginning of this statement. It's pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ That's the good news, and it goes on, the implications of the news for the person being baptized, which is personal salvation. So what is being proclaimed in a baptism is, I'm pointing to the gospel, I'm, I'm living out through my death being visualized under the water, and my life being visualized coming back out of the water. I'm pointing to Christ and the truth of the good news that is for me, and I have received it. And I'm visualizing, I'm symbolizing that in the baptism. Um, you may have heard of the analogy of the wedding ring. I think it's still the best analogy of baptism. You know, it's been used a lot, but maybe some of you uh, are not as familiar with it. Think about how a wedding ring symbolizes something. It symbolizes that I'm married. I can take this ring off. I'm still married. In fact, I, I remember when Jody and I um, were engaged, we bought our rings ahead of time. We had to get them sized, you know. And, and so I remember trying the ring on before I was married, and it did not make me married just putting the ring on. Just as taking it off doesn't make me unmarried, yet I love to wear it. I love to wear it because it points to something beyond itself. It points to a union, you see, just as baptism points to a union as well. And we'll get into that. Now, next, still under this heading of what is baptism, I want to talk about the word baptism. It it comes from a a Greek that's literally just transliterated over. That means like when you don't want to translate into a different English word, you just take the Greek word and you say it. So baptizo is the Greek. Baptism is the English right? It is. It's the same word. Now, why is it not translated um, um, uh, uh, effectively? Here's why. Baptism in Greek, baptizo, just means to dunk. It just means to immerse. And you need to understand it wasn't a religious word for them. When you and I think about baptism, we only think about it in a religious context. Right? But they would just use that word all the time. They, they would baptize their dishes. Now that sounds weird to us, but they would. That just means they would put them under the water and scrub them and then they would bring them back up. Um, they, they would use this word about ships that sank under the water. That ship was baptized. That sounds weird to us. It's just a common word. That ship was immersed. It was, it was dunk of someone that drowned. They were baptized, you see. That's how common the word was. It was most commonly used in the dye trade business. So out in the marketplace, if you're buying cloth, you're, buy, you're buying an outer garment, you know, the, the most expensive ones were the ones that had been dyed. Well, how do they dye something? By baptizing it, right? By 
by immersing it in a colored uh, liquid, in a, in a dye. So I, I have an example to show you over here. Um, th this, uh, despite what it looks like, is not a big bowl of grape juice <laughs> for communion. No, no. This is a, uh, a bowl of purple dye. And so what they would do in the dye trade is, is they would take a plain piece of cloth. Now, there's typically wouldn't actually be bright white. It would be whatever color it came from, from the animal or the substance that was weaved to make the, uh, to make the cloth. So probably usually it'd be kind of be a dull, natural, uh, light brownish color. And then they, they, would sub, you know, they would immerse or baptize the clothing, the cloth. It's literally what they would say. Is they'd say, go baptize that cloth. And they would put it under the water. Now, they let it sit there for a little period of time. And, and what's interesting about this is depending on the color that they were dyeing it, it identified that clothing in its value. So, you know, red had a certain value, blue had a certain value, purple had a certain value. Why were there different values for different colors? Because of how difficult it was to get that color. In the case of purple, which was the most expensive, you could only get the color purple in ancient times from these uh, very specific sea snails. And then you had to go out to the ocean and catch a bunch of them and you could extract this purple color. And believe it or not, as I did research, I learned it took a quarter of a million sea snails for one ounce of purple dye. So you can see why purple was so expensive. They would put it in that purple dye. It would come out and be this beautiful purple color, right? And then only the ones that were wealthy could afford this. You know, that's why purple over time was associated with royalty because oftentimes only royalty could afford it. So if you're wearing purple, you are identifying yourself as either royalty or someone of great significance and wealth and importance. That's how this worked. If you couldn't afford it, you wore a cheaper color. So, so baptism came to, to be about identification. What, what dye has your clothing been baptized in? Now, here's where I think this is so helpful for us. Baptism, at the end of the day, for us too, is about identification. You're being identified with something, better said, someone, when you go under the waters and come back up. You're, you're being immersed in something and you come back up and it's visible to all, right? You're wet, right? Because of your baptism, what are you being identified or who are you being identified with? Uh, listen to Jesus' words in, in Matthew 28. I'll put it on the screen. You don't need to go there. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission to the disciples, it says this. It says, you know, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And verse 19 is the key verse here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, not in purple dye, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Something far more costly, something far more valuable even than purple dye. Baptize them in the name of the Trinity. And this is one of our most important Trinitarian texts. You see, it's not baptize them in the names of, it's in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So when you are baptized, you are identified in the, with the union of the Trinity. You're kind of brought into that union and you have an opportunity then in your baptism to kind of wear the royal colors, not of an earthly king, but of the sovereign above all, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Furthermore, think about this baptismal uh, um, 
um, process that they were dipping people under in these, these pools and, and, and maybe in a, a rivers nearby. And they were coming up and they were saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All the Jewish people congregating around that hadn't heard about Jesus would say, well, I know the Father, but who's the Son? And I've heard of the Spirit, but I don't think the Spirit's part of the Father. And, you know, and, and it would create an opportunity for these new Christians to say, let me tell you about the Son. And let me tell you about the spirit who is now indwelling me, you see. Uh, it was the living out of Acts 1.8. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria to the remotest part of the earth. Part of your witness is your baptism. That's all kind of rolled up in the what of baptism. Let me keep going. Um, actually, before I do, just two important notes that I want to get to because I know there's some confusion around these things. Number one, baptism itself does not save. Okay, just because you've been dunked, just because you've been immersed, and just because some pastor or preach or, or, or someone you know, said, I'm baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that by itself does not save you. What saves you is the work of Jesus on your behalf. And that work is... is, is um, is activated in you through faith, right? So only if you put your faith in Jesus are you saved. And then the baptism is a symbol of that. Just as, hey, just wearing a wedding ring without going through the wedding ceremony itself would not make you married. Secondly, and this is a corollary to the first, baptism is not necessary for salvation. Some of you in the room are believers in Christ, followers of Christ, you've not been baptized. Your, your salvation's not on the line. Okay, can I be clear about that? And, and I know some of you raised in a Church of Christ background, other denominations that may teach that baptism is a part of salvation. It's necessary. If you've not been baptized, you're not yet saved. They might say it that way. We would disagree based on our interpretation and reading of Scripture. And, and if, if you've got some struggle there, I'd point you to, to Lloyd's message from October 8th. He did a whole message that kind of centered around this key verse of Acts 2.38 and, and sort of showing, no, actually, it doesn't mean that you have to be baptized. Right? But, but salvation and baptism go together. It's, it's like the, 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 the bullet fired and the retort that's observed or heard in this case. So it's, you know, it's like faith comes and then baptism visualizes the faith, but it is not necessary for salvation. Then why get baptized? Why get baptized? That's the, the second area I want to hit. Uh, there's two big picture reasons of why to get baptized. Number one, to obey Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to move too quickly off of this because isn't that enough, you know, in and of itself um, to obey Jesus? Jesus made it very clear uh, that he wants his followers to be baptized. You see that in Matthew 28, 19. You see that in other places as well. It's part of your obedience. It's part of your sanctification. Or you're, you're growing more like Jesus to follow him in baptism. Jesus himself was baptized in obedience to the Father, right? We are to be baptized in obedience to Jesus. You know, one of the, the fundamental things that you're saying when you claim to be a Christian is that Jesus is your Lord. You ever thought about what that means? You know, I'm, I'm, I believe Jesus is Messiah. I believe Jesus is King. And in other words, he's Lord. All those, those terms kind of go together scripturally. What you're saying is he's your sovereign. That you're saying that, that you are his subject, that you're his creation. Therefore, what he asks, what he commands, we are to obey. And baptism is one of those things. Um, we call it an ordinance. Ordinance just means a, a command or a practice or a requirement of our faith. There are two, baptism 
and the Lord's Supper. Doesn't mean if you haven't been baptized or you're not participating in the Lord's Supper that you're not saved, but it's something that Jesus has called us to do. And so we do those things in obedience to Jesus. That's the first uh, reason. The second reason is this. We are baptized to symbolize and celebrate our new lives in Christ. To symbolize and celebrate the work that God has done, our new lives in Christ. Uh, I would like you to turn to one other text, if you would, Romans 6. Romans 6. Go ahead and just flip over to Romans chapter 6. And I, I want to read you a few verses. Uh, this is my favorite text on baptism. I think it's the richest. It's the clearest. It explains uh, what's going on in baptism very, very well. And I think it, it illustrates this idea of we're symbolizing and celebrating the new life that we have in Christ. Let's read Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. Or do you not know, Paul is writing this, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse five, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now what Paul is writing about here is there is a mysterious union that you have with Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him. And it is symbolized most clearly through the act of baptism. And Paul is saying, think about it for a minute. There's a death and there's a resurrection. You go under the water in baptism to symbolize your death. You ever thought about the fact that, uh, you, you know, you go underwater, you're as good as dead unless someone raises you back up. There's a death being symbolized there. And, and I kind of like the fact the way we do baptism here in these, you know, these troughs that we use, it's almost coffin-like, you know? You get in there, it's a small space. You're like, ay, 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 I'm going under the water. And if, if I don't come back up, I'm as good as dead, right? There's a death that's being remembered. Why would you want to symbolize and celebrate your death? You do this kind of death. You know, this kind of death is you're dead to your sin. Now you're thinking, well, wait, wait a minute, I'm still a sinner, no, but, but as a believer in Christ, sin no longer has a mastery over you. Not only that, but you're dead to your old self, Paul talks about in other passages. He says, listen, you used to be all about you, either through your rebellion against God or your self-righteousness and your goodness. You were in the midst of a self-salvation project that was going nowhere. And Jesus came in and said, let me do that for you. And you said, yes. And the old self is dead. You see, it's just a shell. And now there's something new emerging. And so you come back out of the water to symbolize not only your future resurrection, but the resurrection that is now happening in you through Christ, even in this current body as you await the resurrection to come. All this is symbolized. All this is in this picture of baptism. It's this union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And when you really start understanding this, and, and, and Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 
And sometimes it takes faith to actually believe that because I'm still struggling, I'm still sinning, but there is something new emerging in me. And that's true if you've actually put your trust in Christ. And so we want to symbolize that and we want to celebrate that. Why wouldn't you want to celebrate and symbolize the new life that you have in Christ? So baptism, although it's not necessary for salvation, it's an opportunity to, to kind of put on the clothing visibly and say, let, let me show you who I belong to. Let me show you the royal color that I wear. You see, all that's wrapped up here in baptism. Um, one more quick uh, analogy. Some of you know I'm, uh, I'm a college football fan and I'm alumni of the University of Georgia. All right. Now, you know, some of you are chuckling. That, that means you, you know where this is going, okay? It just so happens that this week, a group of people met to decide who's the best team in all of college football. And guess what? They voted on my team, you know? <laughs> so Georgia is now the number one team. And just to give you some context, like we're not Alabama. Like that's not a normal thing for Georgia. It's been a long time since this has happened. So I, I'm celebrating and I kind of want to symbolize. I kind of want to wear the colors of the team. So just for fun today... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, okay, I know that's obnoxious, okay? And, uh, you know, some of you are throwing up in your mouth just a little bit, you know? And some of you are just like, I don't even care about sports. That's just kind of dumb. But, but, but listen, even though I knew that doing that might not win friends and influence people in, in, in Tennessee, <laughs> I wanted to do it anyway. Because I, I want to symbolize and I want to celebrate some change, some newness. We've gone from a bad team to a good team. Does it matter in the grand scheme of life? No, absolutely not. Does it add some fun and enjoyment in my life? Yes. Now, compare that to baptism, y'all. This is the most important thing in our lives. We want to symbolize it. We want to celebrate it. We want to rejoice. We want to wear the team colors. We want to identify with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. All right, that's why we should be baptized in obedience to Jesus and just to symbolize and celebrate the life change that we have in Christ. Who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? This is where we get in a little bit of an interpretational difference, and, and I want to just make a case and explain what we believe uh, as clear as I can. Um, if you understand what baptism is, that, that it's, it's the, the symbolic representation of the, the salvation that's already happened. If you're tracking with that definition I read earlier, then it makes perfect sense that all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. And only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. Right? That makes sense. If you roll with that definition, that definition comes from numerous scripture passages. Now, there are a number of Christian denominations that practice infant baptism. We don't at fellowship. You know, we're, we're with the Baptists on this one in a sense and, and, and a number of other groups and denominations that don't practice infant baptism. Why not? Because a baby has not yet put their faith in Christ. Now, we're not knocking those other denominations. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got a lot of affinity and respect and love. There are brothers. This is a secondary issue. This is not worth fighting over, and this is not worth putting anybody else down over. But we want to read the scripture and interpret it according to what we think is plain. And the plain pattern in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament is salvation comes first, baptism comes second. So when we baptize a baby in a Christian church, it's 
what's called covenant theology. So they're, they're comparing that to the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament. And it makes a lot of sense where they get that from. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. But here's what we would say is we would say, you're, you're, you're hoping, you're trusting that that child one day will put their faith in Christ. It's not the baptism that saves them. Like, you know, they, they don't teach that in the Presbyterian church. It's not the baptism that saves them, but they're, they're trusting that, that God's gonna lead this child to Christ. Here's the reality is some of those babies will come to Christ and some of them won't. That's the reality. Now, some of you have been baptized as infants and, and I, I, you may be feeling some tension in this right now. And I wanna unpack that and kind of give you a little bit of, of encouragement in a few minutes. But we don't practice infant baptism. We practice believer's baptism because that's the pattern of scripture that we see all throughout the New Testament. We don't pick a fight with those that interpret it differently. There are brothers and sisters in Christ, but we do sometimes like to have a good debate over a beverage. <laughs> I should say, make sure it's a root beer because we're on the side of the Baptists after all in this particular <laughs> debate. All right. All right. Hope, no, hope, hope nobody gives me an email about that one, but <laughs> all right. That's just all in fun. When should someone be baptized? We talked about the what, the why, the who. How about the when? You know, how long do you wait? When's the right time? How old should you be, et cetera? Uh, here's what we observe in scripture. The pattern is super clear. Salvation and baptism happen one after another, typically, typically, in very close succession. Uh, there's this great story in Acts 8, which uh, I think we'll be getting to when, you know, Philip is sharing the good news with this Ethiopian eunuch. They're in, a, they're in a chariot together, right? And as soon as this Ethiopian man understands the gospel, you know, from the book of Isaiah that, that he's been studying, then, then he puts his faith immediately in, in Christ as Messiah. And he says, is there any reason why I can't be baptized right now? You know, and, and Philip didn't say, you know, no, you better delay it until you're really ready. Or, you know, why don't, you, why don't you work on your Christianity a little bit? And then when you're really serious about this new Christian thing, you can be baptized. Or he didn't say any of that. He said, look, there's some water. Let's go. Let's go. And he baptized him right there. And, and you might say it this way. Okay, this is, this is um, a, maybe a provocative but true statement. In the book of Acts, we find no unbaptized believers. We find no unbaptized believers. Okay, it, not that there couldn't have been, because there could have been, but the pattern was so clear. It's like, are you a Christian? Yes, tell me about your baptism. You know, baptism is what marks you as a Christian. It's like to be a Christian without being baptized in the context of Acts will be, well, what do you mean and why not? You see, now, the only thing I would say, and this was my experience as a kid, uh, parents, grandparents, you know, aunts and uncles, you know, if, if a child comes to faith in Christ at a really early age, which I believe is completely possible, that was my story. I was four or five years old when my mom explained what Jesus did for me. I knew I was a sinner and I, I realized he died for me and he was raised up and, and I, I wanted to be reborn, you know? I got that at four or five years old, but I don't think I could have expressed that clearly to other people. And so what we do in baptisms at Fellowship is we ask that people be able to share the story of their salvation to accompany the, the picture of their salvation in the water, all right? 
We're not going to be hard and fast on that, but we want children to be old enough that they can not only believe, which I think can happen very early, but they can also articulate their faith to match the symbolism of what's going on. Furthermore, I think it's wonderful when kids, when they get to be an adult, I think it's wonderful if they can actually remember their baptism because it's an important moment in their obedience to Christ. So I would encourage you, parents, if your children have accepted Christ, but, but you're not sure they're ready for baptism, you can have some conversations, but, but you'll know they're ready when they can clearly tell you the story of their salvation. And that would be a great time uh, to baptize a child. But for everyone else, all the adults, it's like, why wait? Why wait? There's no reason. Um, quick note for those of you that were baptized as infants or you know, early in life before you really trusted Christ. You know, you knew about Jesus. You were part of a religious experience, you know, well-intended and, and not knocking any of that. Okay, that was part of your formation. You are today where you are partly because how God used that part of your life. But you have not been baptized as a believer. We would encourage you to be, not require you to be. You can come to this church. You can even be a member of this church without having participated in believer's baptism but we would encourage you to be. We wanna celebrate with you about what God has done in your life. Um, baptism is an opportunity for you now to respond in obedience with your own will to what maybe you experienced early on that you, know, you weren't necessarily really choosing per se. You didn't get it. You didn't understand it all. And, and so that's probably why we had 14 people in that one group in like 20 some baptisms, right? Some of that w w was going on. Now, um, if you've never consciously of your own will chosen to be baptized, why not? Why not? Uh, there's a couple reasons that I hear and I'll, I'll tell them to you in a minute, but I first want to tell you my wife's story. So uh, Jody was um, raised in a church that practiced um, infant baptism. She was baptized as an infant, and then she actually put her faith in Christ as a college student. And, uh, you know, uh, we talked about this when we were engaged, because, you know, I wanted to be a pastor someday, and I had a different theology as it relates to baptism, and I was a little bit arrogant, and like, well, you know, you know that's wrong, right? You know, shame on me, you know? <laughs> foolish, you know, young, early 20, about to get married to this woman. <laughs> and I finally figured out, I was like, All right, I, I can't keep pushing this. And I did a more study and research. So I was like, well, that covenant theology thing, that, that makes sense in a lot of ways. I get, it. I don't agree with the baptism part of it, but I kind of know where they're coming from. No big deal. You know, we're, 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 we're good. We're good. I really just wanted to marry her. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so we got married and I never brought it up. Like I never pushed it. And sometimes it crossed my mind. I'm like, here I am going to be a pastor. And you know, my wife's never been baptized as I understand scripture to teach what baptism is. And it was a tension in my heart, but I, I knew enough at that point just not to pick a fight. And like, according to her conscience, she's been baptized. I, great, I get it. And uh, okay, so Ansley was our uh, firstborn and, and she accepted Christ about six, seven years old. And about a year, year and a half later, uh, she started asking about baptism and we started talking to her and, and she, she just got so excited. She goes, you mean it's a chance for me to show everybody that I believe in Jesus? Yeah, sign me up. You know, I started glowing. And um, the night after we had this conversation, my wife didn't sleep at all. And then I, I woke up the next morning. She was already down in the kitchen and she said, I've been up all night praying and I want to be baptized. And I said, honey, why? why? You know, I was like, inside, I was doing a little party, you know? <laughs> but, um, and I, I was already a pastor at this point in time, right? The first church that I pastored. And, and she said, I want to be baptized, even though I'm afraid. And I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I want to be baptized because I saw the joy on my daughter's face. And I'm like, why don't I want 
to tell everybody that I believe in Jesus too. I didn't get the chance when I was an infant to express that of my own free will. And so I had the privilege to baptize on the same day my daughter and my wife. And it was beautiful. Now, Jody'd been saved since college, you see, but she saw this as an opportunity to go public with her faith, to express it, to celebrate it, to symbolize it. Now, uh, there's two common reasons I hear for not getting baptized. Number one is fear. And, and I, I get that. It's like awkward. You got you to gotta speak, you know? Public speaking is like the number one fear or something like this. Um, that's the number one. And the number two is people think they're, they're not good enough or, you know, I'm, I'm not that serious about my faith or I'm not that into it. I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know? And baptism is for those people that have these like crazy good stories. They're on fire for the Lord. Let me talk about those two. Um, start with fear. Number one, the reason that you're afraid is that you're, worried what other people think of you subconsciously. The gospel pushes straight into that fear. The gospel says you are accepted by the only one whose opinion actually matters. You are received by the only one whose opinion actually matters. And entering into the water is not about what they think. If you bumble through your testimony, if you bomb it, if you don't know what to say, it's not about any of that, right? It's about what God did for you. It's about that audience of one. And so this is part of how the gospel will do its work to sanctify you, even in the midst of your own fear by taking this step, going against your fear for the sake of the good news that is now emerging in and out of you as you grow in Christ, you see. How about the second? The second objection is I'm not good enough. Do you actually understand the gospel? The gospel is you're not good enough and that's why Jesus had to die for you. But, 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 but I haven't gotten my life straightened out yet. While you were yet sinners, Jesus went down in the earth and back up. Why not you? While you're yet still a sinner, but you've put your faith in Christ, while your life is even now still a mess, why would you not go in and come back up to represent the life change that has just been birthed and will be emerging as you follow Jesus more and more. You see, the gospel pushes into both of those objections, your fear and your sense of not being good enough. Now, at fellowship, we like to make a big deal of baptisms. We do them in our worship services on occasion. We do them when we've done party on the lawn in the past. And uh, here's what I, I want you to think about. I want you to think about this as the number one thing that we wanna celebrate at fellowship. Because baptisms are all about life change. And this is why we exist, right? To glorify God by proclaiming Christ. That happens in baptism, right? How about equipping people? Yeah, that's happening as they're growing in their faith through baptism, giving our lives away. It's all pictured there in, in baptism. This is why we exist. So uh, yesterday I was watching a little football, you know, and uh, I, I would cheer when we'd make any kind of good play, but I would cheer the loudest when we'd make a touchdown. Baptisms are the touchdown of the church. Like baptisms are the moment in time that the church should say, yes, go God, you've done that, not us. We're cheering it, we're celebrating it. So I wanna give you an opportunity this morning. We're not gonna do a, a, a baptism service live here, although we are gonna do one soon. And I'm gonna tell you in a few minutes uh, how you can get involved in that if, if God's been stirring something in you this morning. And I think he is for a lot of you in the room. Uh, but first, I want you to watch something. I'm gonna show you a video of a baptism service we had just like two Wednesdays ago in this room for our students. 
Our Brentwood FSM, Fellowship Student Ministry. We had four people baptized. I want to read you their names, and then you're going to watch this video. But listen, I want you to do this. When you see them come back up out of the water in this video, I want you to go bananas, okay? Like, I want you to say, that's, that's my team. That's, that's, that's the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Yes, yes. We're going to clap. We're going to hoot and holler, you know, don't, you know. Don't whip out the banners, you know, okay? But, but beyond, I don't think anybody brought that with them. But beyond that, let's go, let's go bananas and let's cheer for what God has done. Let me read you these names. Abby Zopf, Kendall Hazen, Payne Marshall, and Elise Dobson. So y'all are already starting. Right, you guys get it. That's fantastic. All right, let's take a look at this video. The amount of growth and maturity that I have seen in you is unbelievable and I'm just so excited to keep getting to know you better throughout the years um, and to watch you grow spiritually and mature um, just in your life and in your faith it's exciting I'm really excited and I'm really really proud of you you're not the same person you were a year ago um, and it's just been amazing to see um, the transition that that uh, the Lord's brought you through uh, during this time so I'm so honored to be here so honored to call you my friends my brother in Christ and it's obvious that Christ has changed your heart and life based on what people see in and through you first um, Peter 321 says and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where I am today, not only watch, washing away my sins, but I am proclaiming my faith to my family, friends, and peers. From the beginning of my walk with Christ till now, I have learned a lot about the Lord and simply myself. For example, I've learned that Christ forgives me for my sin, and I know I don't have to carry that burden anymore because of Jesus. God's one and only Son died on the cross for me and everyone else on this earth. In order to go further in my relationship with God, I believe the next step for me is to get baptized. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised in the newness of life. You can't help it. You see the joy on their faces. You think about, uh, and they, look, they're young, but they all have their stories, right? And, and you see your own self, you know, in our own stories. Um, I want to say one more thing. This morning, we're actually having a baptism service in the Learning Center for some of our kids. So let me read you some more names of people. Maggie Murphy was baptized last night. Uh, Samantha Baldwin is going to be baptized this morning. I think she's going to be at the next service. Uh, th these are, are worth celebrating, but here's the thing. We don't want to let the kids have all the fun. 
We, we, we don't. There, there's no reason to. Baptism's not for kids. You know, some, it is for kids, but it's for us too. <laughs> yeah, I got to be careful what I say. Um, here's what we're going to do in, in about, I guess it's 10 weeks or so from now. On January 28th, we're going to have a celebration service in this room for adults at Fellowship that want to be baptized. And it could be those of you that have come to Christ recently or those of you that came to Christ a long time ago, but actually have never been baptized as a believer. And, you know, I'm praying that God's just going to stir our hearts and we're going to be doing what we just did like the whole morning. I can't wait for that. So put that on your calendars. And for those of you that have never been baptized as a believer, why not? Like, literally, why not? You get plenty of time to invite your friends and family to, to see this and, part- and experience and celebrate it with you. Plenty of time for, for you to learn more. But, but I don't want you to wait too long before you, you make a, a step toward this because if you wait longer, then you, know, you won't do it. You won't do it. So in your program, there's some information about how, what the next step is. Uh, there, there's an email. Just send a quick email uh, to the person that's listed right there. It's Marilyn Duncan. You can see that in the email. And, and let's just start planning for January 28th together. I'm excited. Now, I can't close this message without just saying a brief word to those of you that are in the room and you actually have never put your faith in Christ and you're watching that video and you're like, I don't get it. You know, I, I guess they're just they, they, this manufactured peer pressure or something. And I, I don't know what that's all about because I've never experienced that. Let me, let me just say this to you all. What you just saw is not some fake um, a contrived thing. Talk to the friends and family of those kids that were baptized. What you saw, the joy you saw in those kids' faces is real. And it can be for you. It can be for you. And you don't have to get all like, you know, uh, you know super religious and go through a bunch of ceremony. You, you just simply say, I put my faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection that it was for me. And you just talk to God about that. That's all it is. And then we can baptize you as well. On January 28th, I'm praying for some of those stories. Some of you in this room, like you, 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 you th- you've thought you were a Christian all your life because you've been raised in a Christian church. You've never actually taken the step of faith of putting your faith in Jesus. And then finally, for those of you that have been baptized as a believer, here's what I'm gonna call you to do is as you're praying for those people that don't yet know Christ, one thing that I think we should hope for and even aspire to is that we would get a chance to kneel on the stage with someone we love being baptized and that we'd get all wet from the soggy hug afterward and that we'd get to experience that joy because you have joy watching it here. Just imagine what it's like for those people on the stage that are embracing that person because they know their story and they've witnessed what God has done. That's my hope for us, for all of us, that we would be on the stage someday celebrating with someone we know and care about and have been praying for. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna close in a song as before you leave. Our Father, I do pray for those who have not yet put their trust in you. They're here this morning. You're working in their heart. Um, Maybe even in spite of their own objections, they feel something stirring them. And I pray that they would just look to you and cry to you for salvation because we know that anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. And I pray for those that uh, have not been baptized. God, would you not allow them to feel guilt, but would you birth in them an energy toward wanting to symbolize and celebrate the new life that you are birthing in them? 
Would that be part of the story of our church is that we love to cheer people on as we hear stories of life change through this ordinance of baptism. And finally, for those that do not yet know Christ, I pray for dozens and over the next years, hundreds of men and women that we've been praying for. Literally this fall, we've been praying for people who will be baptized in this church in years to come. God, would it be? Would you make it be? I believe you will. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the powerful name, the majestic name. Amen.